Last Sunday, we began this series on the person and character of God. There is no subject in this universe that is more important than the subject of God. It sounds like a cliche, doesn't it? But it's true. Knowing God is determinative for life after death. In John 17, 3, Jesus, in his great high priestly prayer to the Father, said, This is eternal life. And that should get our attention whenever that type of statement is made in Scripture. This is eternal life. This is life eternal, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That verse tells us that eternal life results from knowing God. And nothing is more important than that. In Matthew 16, 26, Jesus said, What is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? In other words, nothing even comes close to comparing with the value of knowing God and having eternal life pulsing in our soul because those who don't know God will be eternally judged. 2 Thessalonians 1.8 says, When the Lord Jesus Christ returns to this earth in judgment, he will come in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So this issue of rightly knowing God is of utmost importance because it is determinative for life after death. But that's not all. Rightly knowing God not only has ramifications for the life to come, it, it has tremendous ramifications for life here and now. Oh, how I wish more people would understand this. Rightly knowing God is foundational to right living. Right living begins, now it's not the, you know, the all, but right living begins by thinking right about what God is like. So many of the problems people have in life stem from wrong perspectives about God because what you believe about God impacts you and it fleshes out in your life. Your knowledge of God is the key to your life. Rightly knowing God is the key to emotional, mental, intellectual, and spiritual well-being. For that reason, Psalm 14.1 and 53.1 both say the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. God's definition of a fool is someone who does not believe there is a God or, to expand it, someone who lives as if there is no God. Let's see this by way of introduction by turning to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 12. So we'll begin our time in the Word in Luke, chapter 12. And this is our Lord teaching, Luke, chapter 12. And we'll pick it up in verse 16. And notice what Jesus said. Luke chapter 12, verse 16. Then he spoke a parable to them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build greater, and there I will store all my crops and my goods, and I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, 
this night your soul will be required of you, then whose will those things be which you have provided? Evidently, this man was a smart man, a smart businessman. He was successful. He had to expand his business. But God called him a fool because he lived his life as if there were no God. And coming off of that parable, Jesus brings the application in verse 21. So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So is he. In other words, to be specific, a person is a fool. A fool if he lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God, or to say it a different way, if he lives his life as if there is no God. So again, God's definition of a fool, according to the two statements in Psalms, and according to this passage, a God's definition of a fool is someone who does not believe there is a God or someone who lives life as if there is no God. And our world, as you know, is filled with people like that, some of whom are very religious or philosophical about it. For example, there are people in our society who call themselves atheists. An atheist is someone who denies that there is a God. An atheist is someone who categorically states there is no God, which is absurd for anyone to have the audacity to make that kind of statement, to, to be that arrogant to say, in essence, I know everything and there is no God. An atheist is like a cactus sitting in the desert telling another cactus there is no ocean. How does it know that? To be able to say there is no God would mean that you, have, you would have to have perfect and complete knowledge of everything, and you would have to have been everywhere in the universe and searched it out to be able to state your position. There is no God. I know everything there is to know. There's not one little, you know, microcosm of, of, of a, a gap in my knowledge where God might exist, and I've been everywhere in the universe, searched it out. There is no God. That's utterly ridiculous. Or to use the Bible's term, that's foolish. But most people who are atheists are they atheists because it's the most expedient way to deal with their sin and guilt. You can just sort of get rid of it by saying there is no God. A second form of man's foolishness is agnosticism. An agnostic is someone who says the existence and nature of God is not able to be known. In effect, this is a softened form of atheism. Not a categorical denial of God, but rather a view that says we don't know if there's a God and we can't know if there's a God. The agnostic says he doesn't know if there's a God. But please understand, it's not because he can't believe, it's because he chooses not to believe. He doesn't want to believe there is a God. The evidence is there if anyone, if any man or woman will be intellectually honest. A third form of man's foolishness is evolutionism. An evolutionist is someone who thinks God has never acted to manifest, reveal, or show himself. So the evolutionist explains away creation by saying the universe came into existence by chance or by accident or by some way other than the way God says the universe came into existence. That's an evolutionist. Atheism, agnosticism, and evolutionism are all forms of, please hear this, 
willful unbelief. Willful unbelief. Romans 1.28 speaks of those who do not like to retain God in their knowledge. That is, they don't want to know about God. They don't want to believe in God. They, they don't want to face the facts. They don't want to retain God in their knowledge. They want to push, push Him out as far away as they can push Him. A fourth form of man's foolishness is pantheism. A pantheist is someone who believes that, God, that everything is God. The rocks are God. The trees are God. This is God. Everything is God. Everything. In essence, this is nothing more than a form of atheism because if you really think about it, if everything is God, God isn't anything. Furthermore, this belief denies man's responsibility because everything and everyone acts of necessity within pantheism. So man is not a free agent, not independent in a sense, not accountable for his conduct. He's just part of God, part of the whole system. The whole thing is God. This belief also destroys the foundation of morals because sin is a necessary and unavoidable weakness, which means God himself is sinful. This belief also makes personal religion impossible because there's really no distinction between human and divine beings in pantheism. Everything is God, so in essence, this deifies man. That's pantheism. A fifth form of man's foolishness is polytheism. A polytheist is someone who believes in many gods, but doesn't believe that there is one true God. Without realizing, a polytheist is a worshiper of demons, Scripture says in both the Old and New Testament. A sixth form of man's foolishness is deism. A deist is someone who believes that God created the world, but then he just left man to work out his own destiny. In other words, God exerts no influence on men or the world he has created. God is not involved at all in this world. That is deism. A seventh form of man's foolishness is what I call practical atheism. A practical atheist is someone who might even believe there is a God. If you were to ask, he may state there is a God, but he lives his life as if there were no God. It, It is intellectual if he wants to assent to the existence of God. It's an intellectual assent, but when you look at his life, it makes no difference whatsoever. And probably most people fall into this category. Most people aren't going to say there is no God. They will acknowledge there's a God. They don't deny the existence of God, but frankly, they just don't care. They live life as if there were no God, sort of like the man here in Luke 12. They love their sin. They love self, so they suppress any fundamental instincts about the reality of God and accountability to God. And this is really easy to do today with all the alcohol, drugs, and entertainment that's available to just keep your mind off God. So all of these views are forms of man's foolishness in refusing to believe in the one true God of Scripture who is both imminent and transcendent. Now what do we mean by those terms, imminent and transcendent? When we say God is imminent, that means he is involved in his creation. 
When we say God is transcendent, that means he is separate from or distinct from his creation. And that's the way the Bible presents the one true God. Pantheism says it's all God and there's no distinction, but the Bible says God is transcendent. He's separate from or distinct from his creation. Deism said God is totally removed. He's He's created everything and walked away, but the Bible presents God as imminent, which means he is involved. Now, in the last message, I mentioned that we're going to outline this brief series around three questions. Who is God? What is God? And what is God like? Who is God? We saw last week from Acts 17 that he is creator of the world and everything in it. He is king and lord of his creation and of this universe. He is sovereign. He is the life giver, the source of everything. He is the governor or controller of history. He is the revealer. He does what he does so he might reveal himself to be who he really is. So that answers somewhat, not that you can totally answer, but it at least begins to answer the question, who is God? Now we need to move on to the next question, what is God? What kind of being is God? To attempt to answer that question, we need to consider the very essence of God. Before we jump right into this subject, let me explain the difference between the essence of God and the attributes of God. Most Christians are somewhat familiar with the attributes of God. Most Christians have done some kind of theological study on the attributes of God. The attributes of God are things like his love, his mercy, his holiness, his grace, his wrath. All of those fall under the category of his attributes of God. And that kind of study helps us answer the question, what is God like? But before we even begin answering that question, we need to answer the question, what kind of being is he? What is he? What is his essence? I believe there are five aspects of the essence of God. So let's enumerate them and probe them a little bit. Number one, God is spiritual. Now when I say that, don't think of spiritual in contrast with carnal. We're not using the term in the sort of popular sense of the term where we might say, oh, so-and-so is a very spiritual person. In other words, he's spiritually minded, not carnal, you know, not that. That's not how we're using the term. When we say God is spiritual in this technical sense, we mean that he is a spirit being. He is a spirit being in contrast with being material. God, let me say it this way, God is immaterial. Now again, that's not in the way we popularly use that term. We use the term to say, well, it's unimportant. That's immaterial. We're using these terms very technically. God is immaterial and incorporeal. Jesus said this plainly in John chapter 4. Turn over to John chapter 4 and notice our Lord's statement. We're going to put just one key verse with each of these aspects of the essence of God rather than a whole list. We'll just connect one to illustrate the point. John chapter 4. This, of course, the famous story of Jesus talking with the woman at the well. And as they talk about worship and about God, in verse 24, Jesus says to this woman, God is spirit. 
And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. There's the statement. God is spirit. According to Jesus' words in Luke 24, 39, a spirit doesn't have flesh and bones. So God has no physical body. When the Bible speaks of God as having human parts like eyes, ears, hand, arm, those expressions are what, what are called, it's a very technical term, a long term in theology, anthropomorphisms. A combination of two words, anthropos, man, morphe, form. Uh, those expressions, uh, that's a long word that simply means God is described in terms of a man to help us understand him. For example, the Bible speaks of the eyes of the Lord that go to and fro. The arm of the Lord is not shortened that it is unable to save. But God doesn't have eyes. God doesn't have an arm. Doesn't have either. Psalm, Psalm 36, 7 says, How precious is your loving kindness, O God. Therefore, the children of men put their trust under the shadow of your wings. So what are you going to say to that one? God's a big bird? Obviously not. God doesn't have the body of a bird, but that's a way of saying something to help us relate to God. You know, the Bible has to, God's Word has to uh, condescend to us in this way. Otherwise, it would be utterly impossible for us to understand God. God does look, by the way. God does see. God sees everything. But He doesn't see with eyes. But how else is God going to describe how He sees? If the Bible said God looks around the world with His guonk, we wouldn't understand what that meant. What does that mean? So the Bible describes God in terms that we can understand. But it's important to, to recognize that God is a spirit being, and as such, he is invisible. That's, what, that's what's so amazing about the incarnation. God the Son, whose divine essence is spiritual, became a man to walk among men so he could display what God is like. That's why he said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. God is a spirit. But that doesn't mean God is some kind of floating cosmic force. Don't think of him that way. He is a spirit and he is a person. When we hear the term person, we immediately think of a human being. God is not a human being, but he is a person. He has the essence of personhood, self-consciousness and self-determination. Personal pronouns are always used for him. God is a he, not an it. Personal titles are always are used to describe him, such as father, friend, counselor, shepherd. Furthermore, he has the characteristics of personhood, intellect, emotion, volition. He thinks, he acts, he feels, he speaks. So God is a person, not a human being. He is a person. He is a spirit being. That is part of his essence. That's what he is. He is a spirit being. Number two on this list, God is self-existent. That means that God has life in himself. Look at the very next chapter of John's Gospel, chapter 5, verse 26. Jesus said this, John 5, 26, for as the Father has life in himself. Stop right there. The Father has life in himself. God is self-existent, which means the basis of his existence is in himself. He exists by necessity of his very nature as God. 
This does not mean that God is his own cause. God is not his own cause. He did not cause himself to come into existence. He is the first cause, himself uncaused. Think about that one for a while. It'll fry your brain. But that's God. He is self-existent. That's, that's what he is. He is a spirit being. He is self-existent. Number three, God is immense. Again, we're using these terms technically, not on a popular level. So when we say God is immense, we are not saying God is big. Okay? It means God transcends all spatial limitations. That is the immensity of God. He transcends all spatial limitations. Go back into 1 Kings chapter 8. Back into Hebrew scripture. 1 Kings 8 verse 27. This is a part of Solomon's prayer as he acknowledges that the temple that he has built will not be able to contain God in any way. You're not going to be able to box God in because of his immensity. So in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 27, look at this tremendous statement by Solomon. He says, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you, how much less this temple which I have built. When we talk about the immensity of God, we are talking about his infinity in relation to space. God is present beyond the limits of space. You could say it this way. If, if there were some way we could draw a circle around the farthest limits of space, God would go infinitely beyond that. That's the immensity of God. His infinity in relation to space. Now let's turn that coin over and look at number four, the fourth aspect of God's essence. That is his eternality. God is eternal. God is free from all succession of time. Look at Psalm 90. Psalm 90. Go to the right toward the New Testament. Stop in the Psalms. Psalm 90, verse 2. Psalm 90, verse 2, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. What a great Hebrew word or phrase to try to express the eternality of God. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. This is a statement of God's eternality. The immensity of God which was the previous point, the immensity of God is, is his infinity in relation to space. The eternality of God is his infinity in relation to time. God has the whole of his existence in one indivisible present. God sees the past and the future as visibly as he does the present. He is without beginning. He is without end. He is the architect of time because he created time. Try to grapple with that one. There was no such thing as time until God created it because he is eternal. 
Sometimes when we try to express this concept, and we all do this, we all say this, and not implying it's wrong, but we will say, in eternity past, <laughs> that's an oxymoron. Eternity past, you're talking, you're, you're combining eternity with time, and you can't mix those together. No such thing as time until God created it because he is eternal. That is God's eternality. And then number five, the fifth aspect of the essence of God in attempting to answer the question, what is God? God is immutable. This means that God is unchanging and unchangeable. God is unchanging and unchangeable. Look at James chapter 1. Over to the right, James chapter 1, verse 17. It says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. That is a brilliant picture that James presents there or paints there. He describes God's character at the end of that verse by saying there's no variation, there's no changing, there's no shifting, and there's no shadow of turning. In other words, if you were to look at the shadow of God, it would never change. It's never, you've looked at your own shadow, you've looked at other people's shadows. When there's movement, then there's change. The shadow changes. But God's shadow never changes because God's character never changes. God doesn't change. In fact, in fact, he cannot change. He is free from all increase or decrease. He can't become more of anything, he can't become less of anything. It is impossible for God to change because change implies imperfection. Change is either for better or for worse. Both are utterly impossible for God, inconceivable for God. God is immutable. He is, you know, words just fail you to try to say this, but God is so absolutely, totally perfect, he can't change. Because again, if he changes one way or the other, he's changed for the better or for the worse, it's, it's impossible. He cannot change. He is immutable. In fact, God's immutability applies to his nature, his essence, his attributes, his will, his plan, his purposes, and his promises. God is unchanging and unchangeable. But be careful. This doesn't mean God is without movement. This does not mean God is immobile. God acts in various ways at various times according to his plan, but some things come across to us as a change of plans. But in reality, God has pre-planned all things, and once this was fixed, it will not change, though changes are built in and planned for. Let me take this a step further. The very fact that God knows all things makes them certain. If the future isn't certain, then God can't know all things, and then God ceases to be God. 
If your head isn't spinning already, try this one on for size. The fact that God knows all things makes them certain but not necessary. In other words, God is not responsible for our sin. We are. We cannot say, rightly, from a biblical point of view, God has planned everything, so when I sin, it's God's fault. It's part of His plan. It was a necessary thing. I had to do it. No choice. God is not responsible for our sin. We are. The fact that God knows all things makes them certain but not necessary. God knows all things, and that makes them certain but not necessary. And He has pre-planned all things, and it will not change, though changes are built in and planned for. Some of you may be thinking about passages that say, depending on what translation of the Bible you use, maybe you're thinking of passages that say God changed His mind. Or... Even some translations, God was sorry. Or even some translations, God repented. What do we do with those passages? What do those passages mean? Well, again, there's a technical term for this in theology. You may remember the earlier term anthropomorphisms. Anthropos, man, morphe, form, describing God as having human form. Well, those types of statements, God changed his mind, etc., those are anthropopathisms. Again, combination of two terms, anthropos, man, pathos, emotion, reaction, feeling. So that means God is describing himself as having human reaction. But in reality, God never changes his mind. God never repents. God never says, ah, oh, I didn't think about that. I think I need to change my mind. I didn't see that coming. I need to change my mind on that one. If God ever did something he had to repent of, he wouldn't be God. And that's about the best that I can do at trying to explain it. Now, as we contemplate the essence of God, his spirituality, his self-existence, his immensity, his eternality, and his immutability, it makes us realize it's another reminder, reminder to us that we cannot explain, understand, or comprehend God totally or completely. And it's a good thing we can't, because if we could, then either God would not be God, or some of us would be God, and we would all be in trouble. But realizing the greatness of God ought to cause us to make knowing God our life's number one pursuit. If we don't, we can so easily slip or slide into idolatry. Now, when we think of idolatry, we usually think of a group of people bowing down to a huge statue somewhere in the Far East in a pagan temple where incense is being burned. Well, sure, that's idolatry, but that's only one form of idolatry. Idolatry is also making the true God into something he is not. For example, you remember when God released the people of Israel from Egypt he takes them through the sea on dry land. Eventually they come to Mount Sinai. Moses goes up on the mountain to receive the law of God. He lingers longer than they think he should, and they're, they're starting to get restless, and they say, Aaron, you need to make us a god. We don't know where Moses is. We don't know what's become of him. He's too long. Make us a god. We, we want to follow God. Make us a god. And you know the story. They took all the gold, all their jewelry, and then they formed this God. Well, when the children of Israel made the golden calf, 
Do you realize what they were doing? They weren't trying to commit idolatry. They were seeking to make an image of the true God. Not a false one. In fact, they even said, this is the God that led you or brought you out of Egypt. They sought to make the true God into something he isn't. And that's idolatry. There's another form of idolatry that we can very easily slip into here in our day and age, and that is thinking thoughts about God that are not true of Him. Being willing to entertain perspectives of God that are not true of Him. Just as an illustration, I've I've talked with many people through the years who have fashioned an image of God in their minds that is not the picture presented of God in Scripture. And sometimes they do this to justify their actions or rationalize their actions. For example, I have had I've had more than one person tell me that God was leading him or her to divorce their spouse without any biblical grounds. And I always say, which God? God is leading you, which God? Not the God of the Bible. If you're saying the God of the Bible is telling you to do that, that's idolatry. You've now just shifted or made God into something he isn't. The God of the Bible wouldn't contradict himself that way. So it's possible for us as Christians to embrace a view of God that allows us to be comfortable with our sin. That's idolatry. Another way we can commit idolatry is when we overemphasize one attribute of God at the expense of another. For example, some people want to recognize only the love of God. They don't want to hear anything about his holiness, anything about his justice, anything about his wrath. It's just the love of God. It's all they want to think about, talk about, or that's the only perspective of God they want to entertain. Some Christians have recognized this, and so they go overboard the other way. They emphasize the justice of God, the righteousness of God, the wrath of God at the expense of the love of God. And usually when people do that, you can see it in their lives because they have very little compassion for people because of their view of God. As I said at the very beginning, our our view of God fleshes out in our lives. So if we have a view of God that he is a God of justice, a God of holiness, a God of wrath, a a God of righteousness, but not a God of love, then that's going to come out in our lives. That's going to come out in the way we treat people, the way we relate to people. So, entertaining thoughts about God that are untrue of him is a form of idolatry. So let's not just view idolatry as something that happens over in the Far East, you know, in pagan temples where incense is being burned and there's some kind of shrine. We can, any of us, can slip into idolatry. In Psalm 50, verse 21, God said to the wicked, this is an amazing statement from God, You thought that I was just like you. Isn't that some indictment? You thought I was just like you. And the implication is, I'm not like you. Don't reduce me to you because I'm different than you are. But that's our tendency. Our tendency is to think God is just like us. But beloved, that's idolatry. God isn't just like us. When we make God into our own image and in our own likeness, then that is idolatry. So that in and of itself ought to cause us 
to have a drive to make knowing God our life's number one pursuit. The Christian life should never become boring. should never become boring because at the heart of the Christian life should be a desire to know God. And if you realize just how, and what, now what word are you going to use here, how unfathomable God is, how beyond us, you realize it's a lifelong pursuit. Not something where we check the box, well, I took some theology and now I know God. It should be our life's number one pursuit. Something that never, never gets old to us. Is always a challenge. In fact, along these lines, look at Paul's words in Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. And as we look at these words, I want to remind you that Paul wrote the book of Philippians, the letter of Philippians. We'll just use a, a round date to keep it clear, 60. Let's say A.D. 60. And again, just to use, to keep the math simple, uh, approximate date of Paul's conversion, A.D. 30. Or you could push that to 31 and 61. The point is this. When the, by the time Paul wrote this, he had known the Lord for about 30 years. So keep that in mind. He had known the Lord for about 30 years. Not only did Paul know the Lord for 30 years by this time, if you know Paul just from the New Testament, he had passionately pursued knowing the Lord for 30 years. And that makes his statements here even more shocking in a good way. Because notice what he says here. Philippians chapter 3. This is a, a great chapter of Scripture because it's one of the few chapters in the Bible that present to us all three phases of salvation or all three aspects of salvation. Justification, sanctification, and glorification. Justification is being declared righteous. That's verse 7. What things were gained to me, these I counted lost for Christ. Yet indeed, I count all things lost for the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. That is justification. Paul says, I, I obtain righteousness by faith. That's justification. At the end of this chapter, he talks about glorification. He says in verse 20, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body, that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able to subdue even sub to subdue all things to himself. That's a brief statement about glorification. Jesus is coming back. We are eagerly awaiting his return because when he comes back, we will have transformed bodies. That's glorification. So justification in 7 through 9, glorification in 20 and 21, and then in the middle of it is this fabulous statement about sanctification. So in justification, it is positional righteousness, in, in justification, positional right, righteousness, sanctification, practical righteousness, glorification, perfected righteousness. And look at Paul's statement about sanctification. Now again, I want to remind you as we read these words, Paul had been a Christian for approximately 30 years and had been pursuing the Lord all that time. It would be very easy to assume 
Now you can coast. I mean, look, 30 years. 30 years you've known the Lord and passionately pursued the Lord. Just coast. But instead, look at what he says. He says in verse 10, that I may know him. It almost sounds like a contradiction. He just said in verses 7 through 9 that I've given up all my own righteousness that I can have the surpassing value of knowing Christ. So Paul already knew Christ. So what are you talking about here, Paul? You already know him. Oh, yes, but he's not talking about justification knowledge. He's now talking about sanctification knowledge. Not simply knowing, we we use that phrase, knowing Christ as your Lord and Savior. He's not just talking at this point now about knowing Christ to be saved. He's talking about knowing Christ relationally in sanctification. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead, not that I've already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. I tell you, the Apostle Paul made complacent Christians about as comfortable as trying to sleep with a coat hanger. I mean, Paul, you just, if you're around Paul, you, you can't be comfortable being complacent. He says, I, this, I haven't attained, I'm not, but I'm pressing on. Verse 13, brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead. Isn't that interesting? Paul's one thing has two parts to it. This one thing I do, forgetting the past, focusing on the future. You need to forget your past. Forget your past, beloved. If your past is bad, it will paralyze you. Forget your past. If your past is good, then it'd be easy to coast. So just forget your past. The race is out in in front of us. So Paul says, this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind, pressing forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And let me remind you that these words were written by a man who had known Christ for 30 years and pursued Christ for 30 years, and yet he says, I am pressing, bearing down, giving it full energy to know Christ. So what's the point? The point is this. We should make knowing God, knowing Christ, our life's pursuit. And never get to the point where we say, oh, I know him. I know him well enough now. I know him. It's good. I'm good. No, like Paul, we pursue knowing Christ, knowing God, till the day happens, the event takes place that is described in verses 20 and 21, where Jesus, we eagerly wait for the Savior from heaven. We pursue Christ. We pursue knowing God until the day when our faith is turned to sight. And then as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, then I will know as I am now known. Knowing God is our life's pursuit. Let's bow together in closing. Father, what a challenge from Paul's example here in Philippians 3, what a challenge to our own hearts and minds as we have tried to grapple with or contemplate, Father, your your very essence, what you are, 
that you are a spirit being, that you are immutable, that you are immense, that you are eternal, that you have life in yourself. And these are, these are concepts that even as we state them, they are beyond us. Immediately we recognize that. We recognize our own limitations. But considering you, meditating on you, is, that's, what, that's what happens to our own minds and our own thoughts. We bump into the wall of our limitations. But that's good for us, to be stretched, to think bigger thoughts than we would normally think. So thank you for the privilege, Father, of knowing you and knowing your Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for the privilege of knowing Christ for salvation or justification. But now, may we not be content there, but always be pursuing knowing you more. And again, we thank you for that privilege. And thank you that one day, this faith that we live by now will be turned into sight. As we see in the book of Revelation, they shall see his face. What a day that will be. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.